This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court announced today that it will make as few changes as it can to existing state and federal legislative district maps, reports the Associated Press. The four to three ruling split along ideological lines on the state's high, state's high court. The decision handed Wisconsin Republicans a significant win in their ongoing fight over drawing the state's new voting maps. The quote, least changes approach, unquote, will largely entrench maps created and approved by Wisconsin Republicans a decade ago. Experts say those maps created a significant advantage for Republican candidates, even when Democrats have performed well in Wisconsin. The court's liberal justices criticized the majority's decision. Writing in a dissent, Justice Rebecca Dallet wrote that the outcome has, quote, potentially devastating consequences for representative government in Wisconsin, unquote. The state Supreme Court last handled redistricting more than five decades ago in 1964, reports the Associated Press. Democrats have been seeking to have redistricting settled in federal and not state court. While a federal lawsuit is pending, those judges have agreed to let the state lawsuit play out first. Today, the Wisconsin Legislature's Budget Writing Committee approved the flow of more than $400 million across the state for opioid prevention and mitigation. The funds headed to Wisconsin are part of a massive $26 billion nationwide settlement with pharmaceutical distributors and Johnson & Johnson. The lawsuit alleged that the companies failed to communicate the risks of opioids and failed to properly track suspicious orders of the drugs. The state of Wisconsin, as well as 87 counties and municipalities across the state, were part of the lawsuit, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The legislature's Joint Finance Committee approved how that $420 million, over 18 years, will be carved up across the state. 70% will go to Wisconsin counties and some local governments, and 30% of the settlement will go to the state's Department of Health Services. The Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, or WEDIC, will move its Madison offices to the Urban League of Greater Madison's Black Business Hub in order to better support small businesses and entrepreneurs. A press release from WEDIC today confirmed that this move to Madison's South Side will take place when construction for the hub is complete in 2023. WEDIC was created in 2011 by the Wisconsin Legislature to support business and economic growth in the state through targeted programs for job growth, business startups, and business expansion. Redick says the move will allow them to be more involved in the entrepreneurial communities of Wisconsin, including communities of color, women, and LGBTQ plus individuals. An update to state An update to St. John's Lutheran Church could provide affordable housing to the downtown area, reports the Capital Times. A new proposal to redevelop the 165-year-old building on East Washington Avenue looks to turn the space into a mix of worship, community space, and affordable housing. Under the proposal, the development would become a 10-story building and have space to hold 122 apartments, with the first floor being used for worship services by the church. St. John's is not new to issues surrounding homelessness and housing insecurity. Before the pandemic, the church was used as an overnight homeless shelter. An informal presentation on the proposal heads to the City of Madison's Urban Design Commission tomorrow night. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources has drafted new regulations for PFAS chemicals in drinking and surface waters. The DNR's draft regulations propose a combined limit of 20 parts per trillion for two common PFAS chemicals. The rule also requires testing of wells and filter installations for wells that violate these limits. 
Often called forever chemicals, PFAS do not break down naturally and have been linked to a variety of health problems, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Madison Water Utility test results from 2020 showed PFAS levels in Madison wells range from 0.5 parts per trillion to 47 parts per trillion. Hearings will be held this Wednesday, that's tomorrow, and next week on Friday, December 10th. Madison's Capitol High School will be teaming up with UW-Madison to offer a new college credit course, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The three-credit course, titled Research and Evaluation for Equity, will help build an understanding of the knowledge and skills needed to do research and evaluation of equity and social justice. The credits will be given through UW-Madison, but will be transferable to any four-year college should the student decide to not study at UW-Madison. Capital High also stated that they will be paying the tuition for the course to help as many students get a college experience as possible. A proposed ordinance may make Madison the first city in Wisconsin to ban cat decline. If the ordinance passes, Public Health Madison and Dane County would enforce a citation and fine of up to $2,000, only providing exceptions for when it may be medically necessary. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, decline used to be a common practice, but is now considered inhumane amputation and can cause long-term chronic pain and arthritis for cats. WORT spoke with the legislation's author, Madison Alder Lindsay Lemmer, back in September. The City County Board of Health will hold a public hearing on the proposal tomorrow at 5 p.m. The Madison Common Council is slated to take up the proposal next Tuesday. And now today's COVID-19 numbers. Wisconsin's seven-day case average hit 2,772 today, with 11.7% of tests coming back positive. The total number of people who have died from the virus is now 9,019 people. 58.9% of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine so far. Both case numbers continuing to rise. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says that people need to remain vigilant in fighting the virus. In a statement earlier today, Parisi stated that hospitalizations from COVID are at the highest since December 2020 and that Wisconsin has the fourth highest per capita rate of COVID in the country. And now on to today's top stories. Two weeks after the verdict clearing Kyle Rittenhouse of all charges, Wisconsin lawmakers have introduced a bill to help close gun loopholes in the state. WORT Assistant News Director Nate Weggehaupt has the story. State lawmakers have introduced a group of legislation over the last two days with the goal of creating more gun regulations in Wisconsin. These bills came a week and a half after Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted by a jury of all charges for shooting and killing two people and injuring a third during racial justice protests in Kenosha in summer 2020. One charge in the trial that didn't have the chance to head to the jury, a charge of possession of a dangerous weapon as a minor, which is a misdemeanor under Wisconsin law. While there is no dispute that Rittenhouse was carrying a semi-automatic rifle the same night he shot and killed two people, the charge was thrown out by the judge after Rittenhouse's defense team found an exception in to the state law. The exception centered on whether a rifle or shotgun has a long or short barrel, and the package of bills introduced by state lawmakers seek to close that loophole. Yesterday, a group of five state Democratic lawmakers introduced a bill clarifying current gun laws. 
They say the bill would merely clarify state law that creates a hunting exception for those who otherwise would be charged with possession of a deadly weapon. Under Wisconsin law, minors, that's those under 18, are generally prohibited from possessing a dangerous weapon. But an exception allows a minor to possess a long gun or rifle if the barrel is longer than 16 inches. The lawmakers say that while that exception was originally written to honor Wisconsin's sporting heritage, after the Rittenhouse trial, more clarification was needed. State Representative Deb Andraka of Whitefish Bay was one of the five lawmakers to author the bill. It's a pretty straightforward piece of legislation. Uh, There has been a very famous case that has made it clear that there are some gaps in our gun laws, uh, and particularly where it comes to minors possessing guns. And we want to make it crystal clear that uh, it is okay in certain circumstances for people to go hunting, but it is not okay to have guns anywhere, particularly minors. Joining Andraka in introducing the bill are two state senators, Melissa Agard of Madison and Bob Wirch of Summers, and two state representatives, that's Todd Onstadt of Kenosha and Tip McGuire of Kenosha. All five are Democrats. The change would allow guns to be owned by minors only when, quote, legally hunting. Andraka says that that means the exception only applies when hunters under the age of 18 are out in specific areas during specific seasons with the proper firearm for hunting. Senator Agard of Madison says that the bill will change the technicality that allowed Rittenhouse's gun charge to be dropped and will help ensure that it won't happen again. We heard the judges' interpretations of our state statutes and were very troubled by the interpretation of this judge. And certainly we want to make sure that um, we are making our communities as safe as possible um, and addressing what we believe to be a technical problem with our current laws. Meanwhile, a separate group of lawmakers introduced a package of gun-related bills today, this time aiming to introduce stricter requirements for storing guns. The package, titled Safe Sorge for Gun Safety, was originally introduced in 2017 by Democratic Representative Lisa Subek of Madison, but failed to pass in the Senate. The package would require any business that sells firearms to lock and secure them when the business is closed, require gun owners to keep guns in a gun safe if they are living with a child, and make it a misdemeanor if someone leaves a firearm in an unattended and unlocked vehicle and the firearm is stolen. The new package was reintroduced by Subek as well as Democratic Senators Chris Larson of Milwaukee, Lena Taylor of Milwaukee, Kelda Royce of Madison, and Democratic Representative Sue Conley of Janesville. Royce says that even with the Republican-led legislature, she believes that the package will be passed. Now, there are a lot of other gun safety proposals that we've put forth, but given a Republican legislature, we know that the likelihood of, for instance, banning bump stocks or passing red flag laws or other kinds of more robust gun safety measures are unlikely to pass. But this is a package of really common sense bills that I think even Republicans should be able to look at and say, yeah, if you are firearm store, then you should secure your weapons when you're closed so that somebody can't just break in and carry away as many guns as they can steal. That's the kind of common sense bills that we're proposing here in this package. The goal of the package, Conley says, is to help teach people the proper way to safely store their gun and to help keep guns out of the hands of people who should not have them. The whole idea around the package is to help people learn how to store their guns properly, right? And we have lots of cases where people who should not have access to firearms, in fact, do have access because firearms aren't always stored 
properly. And so the bill that I introduced, for example, um, requires people, if you're going to leave a firearm in a vehicle, lock the vehicle. Um, That way, it's not easy for someone to steal a gun out of it. So all of these bills are along that same line. Let's protect folks um, from firearm injury by preventing people from easy access to guns when they shouldn't be able to have them. Larson says that the package has been in the works for months and is not a response to the Rittenhouse trial. Both bills are currently circulating for sponsorship. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Put on your hats and gloves because there is a medallion to find. A medallion hunt is being put on by the Madison Public Library with the object hidden somewhere in one of Madison's parks. WORT producer Nate Buggy Hout spoke with the hunt organizer Andy Cloud before the hunt. The weather outside is not quite frightful, which means that it's the perfect time to get outside and explore Madison's parks. The Madison Public Library is holding a medallion hunt, which starts tomorrow, December 1st, and runs until December 10th, or until someone finds the medallion. With me today is the hunt's organizer and Native American storyteller-in-residence, Andy Cloud. Andy, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, starting off, where did the idea for the medallion hunt come from? Yeah, um, well, my my uncle, Tracy, um, well, he'd be my Dega in Ho-Chunk. Dega means uncle. But he um, started these hunts for our family um, when I was just in, like, I want to say in middle school. And so, every year, it's usually Easter um, he'll, uh, make a new, uh, a new hunt for us and we're hunting for the medallion. Um, and then we'll split up in teams and I mean, all the family gets into it. Uh, we'll take a car, you know, carpool and we'll be on our way. <laughs> it's, um, and then, so like later he did, um, these hunts for the Ho-Chunk Nation, the employees and tribal members together. Um, and it'd be, I think he'd do it around this time of year or either the winter. So it's more family, uh, my own family thing that we do. And I just thought it'd be just so fun for Madison to kind of get out there and do something with their family um, and kind of, you know, kind of share a part of my family thing with the city. And I think I'm so excited for it. I'm I'm happy that people are going to be getting out and Uh, trying to find the medallion going on the hunt. Can you just briefly go over some of the details for the hunt for me? Well, such as where it's going to be, what they need to be looking for, what the prize will be if they find it, things like that. Sure, yeah. So um, the medallion itself, it's a clear acrylic, and it kind of, it's a clear acrylic circular, kind of like a coaster size. Uh, and then it's got the seal kind of engraved on it. My uncle Tracy gave it to me for this medallion hunt specifically. 
And so I don't know where he had it made or anyway. Yeah, so that's what they're going to be looking for. There's going to be uh, clues posted to, I think, the library's website every morning. I don't know if it's going to be, I think it's on the library website, but I don't know if it's going to be on other social platforms like Instagram and Twitter or Facebook. And then, um, so every morning there'll be a new clue. You don't have to dig like into the earth. It's going to be probably in the snow. If there's snow in Madison, (laughs) it's going to be in the snow. So you don't have to dig. There's no metal detectors. It's just, yeah, just like kind of finding it in the snow. You mentioned the medallion there, which was given to you by your uncle there. Can you sort of describe to me what's on the medallion? Sure. It's the the seal of the Ho-Chunk Nation. So it's going to, it's a circular seal we have, and it's going to say the the great seal of the Ho-Chunk Nation, and there's going to be the, the state of Wisconsin, also um, of the bear and the eagle. The eagle's going to be carrying a pipe, and then there's going to be a war club, like, on the bottom. It's um, the Ho-Chunk Nation seal, their seal that's on the flag. So, yeah. what it's going to look like and it's clear so it's kind of like um i don't know like glass but you can see through it so i I think it's going to be more challenging to find it that way yeah what is it that you hope people will get out of this hunt on top of just finding the medallion there yeah so i hope people will be teaming together talking to one another trying to problem solve um, because I mean I've I've seen these clues and um, they're really good and my uncle Tracy actually wrote all the clues out he came down from Black River Falls and actually scouted different parks in the area and so a lot of this goes I mean totally everything goes to him and just want to thank my uncle Tracy and so yeah it's just go out, team up, talk about the talk about the clues, trying to, you know, put minds together and figuring out of where it could be. So yeah, so with each clue, it kind of is going to be more detailed into where the medallion is. And so the very last clue, if we should get there, it will tell you the exact spot of where it is, but that's not for another 11 days to 10 days. So um, it's, it's just really exciting and, uh, I hope everyone has fun. Well, this is probably going to be one of the last stretches of nice weather that we're going to have this year. So it's always nice to have an excuse to just get outside and enjoy nature a little bit. So I want to pivot a little bit. And we spoke with you when you first started your storyteller in residence here at the Madison Public Library. Now that we are, now that you are wrapping up your time there with just a couple of weeks left, I think a little over two weeks, how has the residency been going for you and has it turned out the way that you wanted it to? Yes, it's been, it's exceeded my expectations so much. There's a lot of people, a lot of different schools and uh, different organizations through, uh, around Madison and in Madison that have asked me to come in and speak and tell the stories that I know. And so I've been, you know, trying to work it out in my schedule where I can fulfill all these requests and they're still coming in. And so I'm working into uh, next year with 
these different organizations. And it's just been so, I, I can't even express the, the graciousness and, uh, of my, myself to the city and to the Madison Public Library and the Ho-Chunk Gaming. It, it's, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been so crazy how fast it has been going. I mean, I'm, I was looking at two months, and now I'm looking at two weeks, and I just, it's, it's been so crazy. People have been really um, into the arts and crafts portion of it. We just had basket making last night. And the organizer, the the lady, Kim Crowley, she is from the Dells area, and she led the basket making. She said it was just an awesome class, and they had a wonderful time. And all the baskets, most of the baskets got done last night. We're going to have beadwork classes next week, or coming up in a couple of weeks. And before we end this thing, we end the residency. And for me, it's been really rewarding and kind of a validation for myself of, of how far I've come in my life and my journey and how far I have yet to go. And I'm just so super happy and super grateful to to the city and to um, obviously this news broadcast and uh, the radio stations and the publicity and the press that that we've been getting. Well, Andy, I have just one more question for you. Uh, can you give our listeners uh, any sort of special sneak peek at what the first clue is going to be tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <laughs> you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll have to take a look at the uh, Madison Public Library's website tomorrow. Uh, I've been speaking with the organizer of the Medallion Hunt and the Madison Public Library storyteller in residence, Andy Cloud. Andy, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Sure, yeah. Just um, get ready, Madison, and it's going to be fun. And um, if you have any time in the next couple of weeks, look at the uh, website and see what's going on with the storytelling residents. Um, and it's coming to a close. And if you have time and you're willing to come out and be a part of it, um, it definitely you will learn something new and you'll walk away with something and be more richer and in our ways, our, uh, the Ho-Chunk ways in the culture. And if you have any questions at all, I am here, I'm here to answer them um, as best as I can. And um, thank you. All right, Andy, thank you so much again for talking with me today. Yeah, you're welcome. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call takes a look at overcrowding on the UW campus. Wildlife Weekly works to help a northern goshawk go on the hunt. And Radio Astronomy gazes upon the splendor of twin suns. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world deadlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week on the Cardinal Call, the crew examines the current housing situation for students as dorms are quickly becoming overcrowded. But overall, I think the 
biggest obstacle that they faced in just accommodating students is finding the space to do it. And welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. This fall, UW-Madison storms welcomed their largest number of residents ever. Of the about 8,400 students who live in dorms, about 1,600 are living in triple or quad rooms. 270 students are also housed in the Lowell Center. UW-Madison has intentionally been growing the size of the freshman class since 2017, but now the university has exceeded the goal it was expected to reach, UW spokesperson said. UW Housing is currently assessing what the future of residence halls looks like, explaining that they are looking at options to accommodate students in the short term while working toward developing new spaces. College News Editor Sophia Vento took a look at this issue as part of our action project, she talked with our Student Dive podcast co-host Cole Wozniak about this story. We're sharing that conversation with you today. UW-Madison's residence halls are currently housing their largest population ever. How is UW housing handling an influx of new students? And what does the future look like for dorm buildings? Sophia Vento took a look at UW's obstacles to accommodate students seeking on-campus housing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So why is the demand for student housing rising so much in recent years? Yeah, so clearly this year, as has been stated university-wide, they welcome the largest class of freshmen um, ever in the university's history. And I think they chalked this up to, you know, challenges last year with it being a year completely derailed because of COVID-19 with, you know, online classes and everything. But um, just given that the freshman class size was so high, and a lot of students that didn't get the experience living in dorms last year, um, again, given COVID-19, were also seeking to, you know, reside in dorms uh, either again or for the first time. So just the issues with COVID-19 definitely um, spurred this increased demand for housing this year. How is UW Housing currently handling the large influx of new students? Yeah, so they have been dealing with this with a number of issues, just given that there were not enough beds if all dorms were utilized um, as they're intended to. They've um, relied increasingly on triples and quads, so turning um, larger dorm rooms into triples and quads, but also dens in some dorms. They also um, turned the Lowell Center, which is a conference center and hotel on Langdon Street, into dorms this year, which housed, you know, approximately like 200 students, 270. So they've really had to sort of figure out alternatives to accommodating these students by using what they have because, you know, they can't really build new spaces and new dorms overnight. So it's just been utilizing the spaces that they have, converting them to have higher densities of students per room and obviously the Lowell Center as well. What are some of the other obstacles that UW Housing has faced up to this point that has led to this shortage of on-campus housing? Yeah, I mean, the class was definitely um, bigger than expected, which was a challenge for a, a myriad of reasons, obviously, just given they didn't have enough space. But I, um, additionally, uh, residence halls like Celery Residence Hall, for example, have been had some issues with um, accommodating students due to ongoing constructions that have been going on since May of 2020. But overall, I think the biggest obstacle that they faced in just accommodating students is 
finding the space to do it. Um, they were not able to um, give transfer students and um, exchange students on campus housing due to this increased demand. So they've just really had to um, cut down on who they offered it to and quickly find alternatives to house all these students. Does UW expect class sizes to continue to increase in the coming years? They do not. I spoke to um, university spokesperson Meredith McGlone, as well as UW housing director um, Brendan Dibdahl, and both of them said that they really don't expect class sizes to grow. Why necessarily? It remains a little bit unclear. Um, Historically, class sizes have been getting bigger and bigger every year with pretty much every year since 2017 breaking records besides 2020, just given COVID and students deferring college and, you know, obviously a number of other reasons. But overall, they do not think that um, class sizes will increase drastically and they're more concerned with uh, sustaining um, these class sizes that are currently enrolled. Did the university have any comments regarding why they hadn't increased capacity, even though they had planned to increase class sizes? They didn't actually. I mean, I think overall they have, they've been working, UW Housing specifically has been working from a housing master plan that, and they have created new residence hall facilities over the year. But the last time a residence hall was built, adding new beds was in 2013. So, which was, I believe, Leopold Hall. But um, overall, I think that they just didn't expect it to be as drastic and as, I guess, problematic for housing purposes than it has been, just given, I think, Obviously, people or officials could not have predicted COVID-19, and I think that definitely played a role in this. But overall, they um, have been working from the campus master plan, and but we're not, you know, expecting this much of a drastic need so quickly, I think. What does the future look like for UW housing? What are some of the obstacles financially or politically or bureaucratically that stand in the way of more residence halls being built in the near future to accommodate some of these housing shortages? The biggest thing that everyone seems to understand is that UW housing needs to grow. Um, They are currently in the process in the preliminary process phases of trying to figure out what that necessarily looks like. This building new buildings on campus, uh, finding new spaces for facilities and residence halls, whether it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of planning. So they are definitely hoping to have a a plan by in the next six months or so um, that has a little bit more more of a fledged out plan before they go to university officials where there's necessary steps for funding that requires UW system things, but also um, Wisconsin state legislature and other uh, factors. So it's a long process. There's a long road ahead, but they are in the beginning stages of finding areas where they can expand. What is the one main takeaway that you would like readers to come away with after reading your article about UW housing? I think overall, it's just clear that UW Housing has a pretty big issue on its hands, and I'd like um, readers who I'm assuming are people invested in UW-Madison and the community at large, think about what this means for Madison as a city. Given UW class sizes are so large and are expected to not necessarily increase, but sort of sustain at this level, think about what this means for campus, but also just for Madison in general. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. In other campus news, UW-Madison has extended their mask mandate until January 15th. It was previously expected to be in effect until November 26th. It will run through the rest of the fall semester and into winter break. 
UW-Madison will review the policy in mid-January based on public health guidance and the prevalence of COVID-19 at that time. Spring classes are set to begin on January 25th. The mask order for Madison and Dane County was also extended until January 3rd. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Find a print edition near you to read our action project. It's also available online at dailycardinal.com under our Action Projects tab. Keep an eye out for another episode of our Student Dive podcast, where we talk with writers about their action project stories. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares the story of a new patient at the Dane County Humane Society's Rehabilitation Center. It's a northern gossock. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the northern goshawk. What a cool species, um, and have you ever seen one here in our state? It's actually a species of special concern here in Wisconsin, and it doesn't mean that it's threatened or endangered, it just means that it's not one that we see very often. Um, and in all honesties, it's found more towards the northern part of the state uh, documented locations of uh, breeding occurrences really are farther north, um, so we don't have any documented breeding cases here in Dane County. And it is a migratory bird that is protected by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and just through the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, and it's a species that we don't see at our wildlife center very often at all. So even the occurrence of it coming through on a fall migration to the southern part of our state is pretty darn rare. Um, so. Uh, why am I talking about the Northern Gossock? Well, we got one admitted this week. I can't believe it. Uh, it was one that came in uh, just yesterday, although it was originally found on the 28th of November. And this is a bird that, you know, at first glance, we were like, oh, whoa, what species is that? Um, and it took us a second to realize that it was a Northern Goshawk, uh, again, just because we see them so infrequently. But we noticed it had just a beautiful, broad, white eye stripe. And that eye stripe is really apparent when you look at that bird, when you're comparing it to other exhibitors like Cooper's hawk or sharp-shinned hawk. This is actually the largest member of the exhibitor family. So really, really cool. And this bird in particular is a juvenile. So this bird is brown and white and very mottled and heavily streaked, where an adult would look a lot different. So usually an adult, you're going to say, oh, okay, that's a northern goshawk. This one, you know, sometimes they can be confused for things like Cooper's hawks or Sharpshin hawks. So in this particular case, uh, we have a juvenile, um, so all brown and white. If this turns into an adult bird, which happens usually about two years old for goshawks, um, then it's going to be a really nice bluish gray to pale gray coloration, the white streaky underparts, and then usually uh, white undertail coverts, which are the fluffy feathers underneath the retrices and a solid black cap or like really dark head with that very prominent white eye stripe. And that's the easiest way to identify them, I would say for sure. And actually their eye coloration can be generally pretty red. 
Um, and that's awesome. And fledglings won't get that red eye uh, until later in life. It starts out pretty pale and greenish gray, and then eventually turns to yellow, and then eventually makes its way to red. So uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty easy to spot, I think, when they're in their adult plumage, which is very nice. And otherwise, they're just generally con confused with those other two exhibitors that I mentioned. Well, we also have other species like gear falcons and red-shouldered hawks that it could be also mixed with in terms of confusion. But um, again, you're looking for that, that white eye stripe, and, and it's pretty apparent, hopefully, if you see them up close. So where are they found? Well, mostly, like I said, in the northern regions, um, generally breeding in low-density areas, but they tend to be found in with woodlands. And so we're talking about um, areas where there's a lot of um, you know, heavy forestation, I would say. Uh, so they, they say that it's significant in northern mesic forests, uh, maybe moderately found in uh, boreal forests or, you know, white pine, red maple swamp. And so you can actually look on the DNR's website for some species guidance documents about northern goshawks um, because there are management guidelines in place being a species of concern because they are you know, um, threatened by human impacts. So when we're talking about habitat degradation or, you know, uh, more uh, birds maybe wanted to be taken by falconers or fragmentation of habitat, um, forest management, you know, they, they've got great ability to breed here. It's just that things like timber harvest and roads and stuff, that all creates problems for them in general. So, uh, and then climate change can be an issue too. I mean, if we're talking about the loss of certain trees that they might prefer to nest in, that can definitely impact goshawks in a nesting area um, and or where their prey is from things that they're eating. So uh, it's just, it's a very interesting, like I said, uh, species. You can look up the habitat and the general territories if you're interested on the DNR's website. But otherwise, this particular bird that we had admitted was actually found in the Mineral Point area. So again, very rare that we would see one this far south. Uh, but yes, it happens during the migratory period for sure. And uh, the bird has spinal trauma um, or some other type of issue that is causing it to be what we would call sternally recumbent, meaning that it's laying on its stomach or on its keel and it is unable to stand or, you know, use its legs properly to prop itself up and perch. So, um, you know, this is a, a touch and go type of case. We want to help it as much as possible. This is a type of case that requires a lot of time and cage rest and you know, um, anti-inflammatories, uh, pain management. We were actually doing a little bit of tweezer feeding this morning with some small pieces of food, which it ate great. But we don't know for sure if this will end up being a permanent damage or if it will be something that can recover. Um, and our, our Madison vets here at the UWU Veterinary Special Species Program, um, those vets are taking a really great look at it today. We've got some increased diagnostic uh, capacities this year with the wildlife medicine program. So lots of things that we are able to do and hopefully help this bird through this period if possible. And, you know, it, it just takes people like you finding these animals in the wild if they are sick and injured to be able to, to provide uh, transport to our clinic so that they can get rehabilitation. Um, and it is Giving Tuesday today. So, you know, we're, if, are you interested in seeing some raptors? We actually have uh, the ability still for a couple of hours. Uh, actually, well, I guess, depending on what time uh, our radio segment is, is on, uh, from 12 to 5 o'clock today, we have a live stream going of our raptors in our, our flight pens, which is really exciting. But, you know, if you want to donate towards this goshawks care or any of the other patients that may be here in rehabilitation, Today is a great day to do it. Uh, I think lots of nonprofits want to thank WORT for allowing us to have this radio segment annually um, and weekly. So, you know, uh, thinking about our wildlife species and who's there to care for them 
really it ends up being us and, and you know, uh, Giving Tuesday is a great day to help us with those private donations. So yeah, goshawks, super cool species. Hopefully we are able to successfully rehabilitate this one. But you, if you ever find an injured animal or if you have questions on one, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.50 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The sight of two suns on a horizon evokes the desert landscape of the planet of Tatooine in the fictional Star Wars galaxy. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Aaron Lopez explores the reality of whether planets can be found in binary star systems in our own Milky Way galaxy. A lot of us have probably seen a science fiction movie at some point where, as the characters are talking, walking, fighting, or just doing their thing, the camera pans up and you see that the planet they're on has two suns. That got me wondering, can a planet like that, that experiences a sunrise and a sunset at the same time, exist? Well, the correct answer is not so simple. Hi there. My name is Aaron Lopez, and I'm a grad astronomer here at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and you are listening to Radio Astronomy. So how does an astronomer go about answering that question? Is it possible for a planet with two suns to have a sunset and a sunrise at the same time? Let's start with what we already know. We know that the universe is infinite in every direction and has been around for billions of years. So it might feel natural to say, a planet like that must exist somewhere out there and be done with it. But a curious mind in search of truth and understanding will not be satisfied with that as an answer. For starters, has humanity ever actually seen a planet like that? I'm going to read to you an excerpt from an article written by associate editor of astronomy.com, Alison Klesman. Klesman writes, as of July 2019, Astronomers have found 97 planetary systems containing 143 planets around binary stars. We call stars that orbit each other in pairs, binaries. Anyway, she continues. These planets may orbit just one of the stars in the binary system, called an S-type or satellite-type orbit. Or they can orbit both stars together from outside the binary, called a circumbinary or P-type orbit. I found it interesting that humanity has only observed planets orbiting in binary star systems 
with either of these two very specific orbital configurations. Might our hypothetical planet exist in one of these binary systems? A p-type planet, which orbits both stars together from outside the binary, would not experience a simultaneous sunrise and sunset the way we might imagine. Astronomers have learned from many, many observations of exoplanetary systems that orbits like to lie on the same plane, meaning the orbits of planets are like rings on an imaginary disk with a host star or binary at its center. Plus, in order for a circumbinary planet's orbit to remain stable, that is to say, in order for the orbit to last indefinitely without the planet spiraling into its fiery doom or spiraling out into the cold expanse of space, the planet needs to feel a stable, unchanging gravitational pull. That means either the planet must be far enough from the binary, or the two stars must be close enough together such that the gravitational pull on the planet doesn't change wildly as the stars orbit each other. An alien observer standing on the surface of any p-type planet would likely see the two stars rising or setting together. But what about an s-type planet, which orbits just one of the stars in the binary system, with the second star so far such that the change in gravitational pull on the planet from that star is imperceptible? Isn't it possible that as the planet rotates and the nearby star sets, that the distant star might be rising? Well, yes, but there's good news and bad news about that. From exoplanet.eu, a website publicly maintained by the exoplanet team of the Paris Astronomical Data Center, I learned that most planets discovered in binary star systems orbit in S configuration. Nice. However, the secondary, more distant star is often so far that it would look like a very bright dot in the sky, and it wouldn't illuminate the surface nearly as much as its nearby primary star. There is hope yet. Klesman describes a theoretical third stable configuration, T-type planets. A T-type planet would exist off to the side of both stars, forming an isosceles triangle with them. However, binary evolution's theory suggests that it would be near impossible for a planet to form in this position, so if we ever discover a planet like that, it would be very exciting indeed. That's all for today's episode of Radio Astronomy. I don't have any local astronomy news to share with you today. But until next time, have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Sophie Leahy wrote your headlines. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wuggiehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enuestro Patio. Good night.